Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Listen in as former Chiefs of Staff for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Al Franken come together to give an update on the results of the 2017 elections. Brownstein Policy Directors Drew Littman and Brian McGuire join Strategic Advisor Mark Baggage to discuss the results in Virginia and New Jersey, as well as the upcoming special election in Alabama. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. I'm here with Drew Littman and Brian McGuire. We're going to talk about a little bit of the political update of what's going on uh, out there. But first, let me introduce both of the two gentlemen with me today. Drew Littman, Policy Director, previously served as Al, Senator Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. Before that, he served in the office of Senator Barbara Boxer four of those years as policy director. Immediately before joining Brownstein this year, Drew served as a senior counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Matthews Burwell. Also joining us today is Brian McGuire, policy director here at Brownstein, which uh, was most recently Senator Mitch McConnell's chief of staff, where he advised on strategic communications, politics, and policy. Before that, he served for eight years in a variety of senior communication roles in Senator McConnell's Senate Leadership Office. Outside of McConnell's office, Brian consulted for the NRSC during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election and is a speechwriter for the Secretary of Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Bush administration. His writings have appeared in the publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and Politico. Thank you both for joining us today. Well, there's a lot of politics since last time we talked. We have a a race in Alabama that's getting interesting. We've had uh, two governors race in New Jersey, Virginia, and also Virginia's legislative seats in the state delegates there has also been kind of interesting. Let me maybe we can start there. Is this is just a is this a one off or is this kind of something in the air that's starting to shift? Uh, Drew, what I mean, what do you think? I mean, Virginia, for example, the legislative body is, I think it's 50-50 or 49-51. It's pretty darn close. There's a few seats still to be right. finished out. I'd call this not realignment, but but more like proper alignment. The, the delegate seats in Virginia that Democrats flipped were all or almost all in districts that Hillary Clinton actually won during the presidential campaign. So it may this may be a matter of, uh, of rationalizing the system where the where you have state races that line up with the federal races. Democrats have always had trouble turning out their voters for down ballot races or in midterms or in off year elections. What happened in Virginia was the opposite of that. Very high turnout for Dems. So you had those Democratic voters who had been coming out for presidential races, like for Hillary, but not in these in-between-year races. This time they came out. So I think Democrats didn't necessarily change anyone's votes or bring over any Republicans to the Democratic Party. I think what happened is Democrats pulled their voters out. Looking at the past elections, I estimated that the winner would be the first candidate to pull in 1.1 million votes. It's a little more than McAuliffe got four years ago. I think Northam wound up with something like 1.4 million votes. That's turnout because Gillespie's vote number wasn't low. That's just people who typically don't vote in these elections. 
What do you think, Brian? I think I agree with everything Drew just said. Um, I do think Northam, just to put a finer point on it, ran up the score in some of the suburban districts. A high percentage of the people who voted in those suburban districts said that their vote was a was registered as a protest vote against Trump, which reinforces the the point that this was um, a way for people in those districts to express their point of view about the president. (laughs) But um, but again, I think what's most important is whether you're getting people who wouldn't ordinarily vote for uh, Democrats voting for Democrats. That's what the Democrats have to do in 2018 and 2020 to be successful. And um, if this is, in fact, a case where Democrats were enthusiastic and voted the way that they ordinarily would, then I don't think that that suggests that there's any kind of a wave coming for Democrats. You know, if you're talking about rationalizing the map, you've got five states in particular in the Senate up in 2018, Montana, Indiana, Missouri, West Virginia, North Dakota, where if you were going to rationalize the electorate, then Republicans would hold those seats. And um, I'm not sure that this race in Virginia changes anybody's calculations about those states. I think what's most important is candidate recruitment and um, Republicans' ability to point to things that they've actually accomplished in Congress. But um, there's obviously no way to spin what happened in Virginia is good news for Republicans. Um, but I like Drew's explanation. And is Jersey, New Jersey, just kind of what it should have been anyway? But that candidate had a lot of money, personal money, that it just... Well, I don't, I don't even know how much money was a factor. It's a pretty blue state. Right. And I believe that outgoing Governor Christie's favorable rating was the lowest of any seated governor. I mean, he's had dramatic ups, ups and downs. Right. Um, and, and it was clear, I think, to folks in Jersey that he was running for president early on. So he, he had shifted some positions or done some things or refused to do some things that would have been locally helpful, funding a new tunnel to New York, for which the feds were already putting up money, very valuable for northern New Jersey commuters. But Christie seemed to have his eye on, on a presidential race in a larger audience. So I think the brand is probably slightly diminished because of Christie. But I don't think that's not necessarily permanent. Democrats have to do something with it. What do you think? You know, here we had a race, um, the Alabama race, which is now um, gone all kinds of ways. Uh, you have leadership. Your, your former boss, Ryan, that has basically said um, that uh, Roy Moore should step down or move aside. Uh, You have the head of the uh, Republican Senate committee saying basically the same thing, Gardner. I mean, in one way, I mean, Roy Moore ran against the establishment, ran against kind of Washington. Is there a possibility that he still wins in this race? I mean, my my instincts say yes. I Oddly enough, I, I, what do you think is – what's the dynamics? It's, it's, I mean, it's only even right now. It's which... certainly possible, but um, Republican leaders in Washington have basically looked at the evidence and concluded that you they're not going to politicize pedophilia. Right, right. That the politics will take care of itself, mm-hmm. but um, they choose to believe the women in this case. Yeah. And if that means that they you know don't end up with the result that they want, then – that's an outcome that they're obviously willing to accept, given the circumstances. So, what happens if he wins? Does the leadership? What's what happens? I mean, there's a lot of r- rules and regulations that they can impose, but do they, or they just the voters have spoken and that's it? I mean, what happens here? I, you know, I hate to think about hypotheticals, but I mean, that's that's a reality when you're at head to head in a race like this. Yeah, I think the voters of Alabama are going to figure out what they want. Um, to happen here, and it's their prerogative to determine who is going to um, occupy that seat. But I also think they need to consider that in the light of the real possibility that their sitting senator is sitting um, 
on on trial right. before a Senate Ethics Committee for the first quarter of the year, and whether that's Could a short term Senate seat, whether that's a situation that they or anybody wants is um, sort of a separate question, but, Drew, a, re- but a real one. Drew, where do you, I mean, where do you think? I mean, I mean, when I see things like this, I always in a state like Alabama, my my instincts say, okay, if if, if the Democrat wins, it's a short term sit. Because it's not based on the policies; it's based on a circumstance and a situation that a candidate was flawed for a lot of reasons here. But what's what? What's your thinking here? Well, I think Doug Jones has a good backstory. Mm-hmm. So I think if he makes it to the Senate, I think Alabamans might find him to be acceptable. Much as as Brian mentioned, there are. Um, uh, Democratic senators, in some cases, pretty liberal senators representing red states. So it happens sometimes. Just to go back a bit, though, in terms of Senate consequences, I'll put in a plug for Brian's old boss. Mitch McConnell was instrumental in getting Bob Packwood out of the Senate when he was found to be a chronic sex harasser. I think then Senator McConnell was chairman of the Ethics Committee, if my me- if memory serves, and also Larry Craig when there are issues like that. So so he has a pretty consistent track record, I think, and, and speaks pretty authoritatively and knows how to, to work with the caucus to implement something like that if it comes to that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it comes to a plan B. In a situation like this, he's, he really is thinking about protecting the institution and protecting his members the from the association, yeah. correct? And um, he acted uh, very deliberately and um, very definitively in the Packwood case. And at the time, there were a lot of people saying, why are you doing this? This is the sitting chairman of the Finance Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a seat we need. And um, those were, you know, those same calls are being issued today, but I think he's um, benefits from consistency on that. And he did the same thing when Larry Craig was, um, you know, found to have done what he was found to have done. Let me let me ask you this. So here's Bannon, you know, kind of out there, and he's now. I mean, Moore is his candidate. Bannon's also said that he's going to raise money, do whatever he can for candidates to fight kind of the establishment or candidates he doesn't like. I think he said almost every senator, if I remember this right, except a couple. I can't remember which ones they were that he didn't mention. I mean, we see him playing. Uh, I think I heard earlier today or yesterday, one of his big donors has stopped giving him money uh, because of this more issue. But does that stop Bannon? Is Bannon in his own kind of train and just kind of goes where he wants to go? Brian, what's your thinking there? I don't. I don't think it, he thinks it stops him, but I think it certainly um, impairs him mm-hmm. to be associated with people like Roy Moore. And um, you're seeing uh, the proof of that in the number of these donors who are stepping forward and saying, "We don't want to be associated with this guy." I mean, I think it's important to remember that he was fired from the White House, right? And now he's running around. Um, trying to take credit for everything um, after the fact. Well, just that, as is, he, that is kind of Washington in its own world. <laughs> yeah, but he's sort of an expert, world-class uh, yeah. um, competitor credit. in that sport. He loves to show up late and then take credit and then use the credit that um, accrues to him to promote his own image and his own agenda. And I'll, I'll just say, I don't think his agenda is in any way um, advancing President Trump's legislative priorities, and I don't think it's getting uh, majorities in the House of the Senate. Is it a Republican agenda, or is it just a Bannon agenda? I don't think so. I think it's a vanity project. Yeah. Yeah. Bannon is uh, is the cock that crows at dawn and thinks he made the sun come up. You know, he latched onto the Trump campaign when Trump already had a hell of a lot of momentum. Otherwise, 
He supported a lot of losing insurgent candidates, some of them losing badly in Republican primaries. There is no real evidence that he's a political genius who knows how to take Senator House seats. So do you think there's going to be, uh, you know, ask, let's assume for a moment we, we had another podcast we talked about tax policy. Let's assume for a moment tax policy passes the end of the year, let's say some sort of policy. Is that enough for the Republicans uh, in 2018 to hold the majority? Is it enough for Democrats to use to win the majority in the Senate or the House? I mean, and then what are the wins next year? Because we're now almost, well, we're a year in, basically, into this president's and not a lot of big scorecards. we got little things. You know. I would say that it's um, not clear whether it's sufficient, but it's certainly necessary. Mm-hmm. And um, so they know that they have to do this as a both a legislative and a political matter. And um, they'll try to do more, but they know that they have to do this at a minimum. You know, go back to something you said earlier, Mark, The or Brian said earlier, that the the Virginia elections reflected a lot of unhappiness with Trump. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting that these are only statewide elections. No one in Virginia was being elected to a federal office, so no one was going to be directly countering Trump. Mm-hmm. And yet the anti-Trump sentiment was so strong that it regist- registered very clearly. It's possible that Trump is such a big issue in the next election cycle that everything else it, it seems relatively minor. You still have So it, even with potential accomplishments, it may not be enough, is what you're saying. It may not be enough. I don't I don't know that voters always register these accomplishments. We're mm. obsessed with them. Right. But I don't know how aware <laughs> voters are of what passed, didn't pass, how it affects them, doesn't affect them. So so I think Trump on the other hand commands so much media attention that it's 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 all Trump all the time. And and I think he's created an environment where everyone is either running with him or running against him. Look, Democrats have five opportunities and five special elections to try out that message, and they lost in all five cases. I don't think that focusing on Trump alone is sufficient for Democrats to win in 2018 or 2020. I think a more likely explanation for the sentiment in in Virginia being so strongly against Trump is that elections are just simply more national now than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think, yeah, Trump is an outsized personality. And that's going to show. But it's also the case that elections are very easy to nationalize these days, and both sides do it. Do you think the, the voter, I mean, and I see this when I when I travel around the country and, and when I'm back home, I hear from people all the time. There's just, I don't know if there's the right word, but fatigue or frustration or like, you know, Washington, doesn't matter who we elect. It doesn't really matter anymore. I'm going to focus on my city council person or my mayor or my governor or legislator as a more in tune to what I care about and what they are talking about. Do you think that that is becoming a, a challenge where you could have a great candidate, maybe a Democrat or Republican, but the voter doesn't really care because they just don't think Washington's producing for them. And maybe they never did in their mind, but but they see, it seems like there's much higher volume now than ever before that people are just, well, what does it matter back there, whoever I elect? Drew? I, I think... That's quite possible, but I think, again, Trump changes the game. I think people see, on the Democratic side, see Trump as a real threat, a threat to world peace, not a threat on a small scale. So, so I think Democrats will be voting, will be very enthusiastic about voting in 2018 and 2020, even if they're not nuts about the, uh, the uh, candidates. Brian, any thought on that? 
I think as a conservative, the extent to which people are more focused on local elections and local races and the local impact of politics, the better. I think people have put too much um, stock and focus on Washington to both um, better their lives and um, and impact their lives. And I think that, you know, any direction in the other anything in the other direction is a good thing. You know, there's these ads I've, I've seen on TV. I think Tom Steyer is doing them on impeach the president. And then you heard. Nancy Pelosi say, we're not going down that path. I, those are my words, I'm, what you basically said. Um, are those helpful or hurtful to the process of trying to get this political process moving in a positive direction? Or is that just the, the, the times we're in that there's just – I mean, he's spending 5 to $10 million on these ads, which is, to me, amazing when you think about it. And Or is it really for him to do these – and he's kind of, I don't want to say he's the Democratic bandit, but he's his own guy, right? He kind of works in his own sphere of life. If five to $10 million is a lot of money out of one person's pocket. In terms of a nationwide ad buy that's going to stick Small. with people, you're not getting enough repetition for people to really be aware of it. So I think Steyer is rumored to be considering running for governor, of running for Senate, even running for president. Right. So I think, I think Steyer is sincere. He sincerely believes Trump should be impeached and, and that Democrats should say so. But I don't think this ad campaign is really intended to drive impeachment, maybe to drive a conversation about it. But otherwise, Does it not hurt or help Democrats? I mean, what do Democrats do in this situation? I think most Democrats just won't feel that they have to respond to Steyer's TV ads. Um, I think that uh, Pelosi reflects, I think, and Schumer reflect where the Democrats are, which is let's fight it out with the White House and the Republicans on issues, and to some degree, certainly on, on conduct and, and behavior, but not make it about impeachment. For those of us who are in D.C., when uh, the House voted to impeach Bill Clinton and the Senate held a trial, that seemed to blow back pretty hard on the Republicans. Clinton came out of it shortly after as popular as he, he ever was, close to peak popularity. In some states, he remained above 50 percent favorable yeah. throughout. It seemed to voters like Republicans had interpreted their election wins as a mandate to, to almost launch a coup. Voters voters feel it's their responsibility to decide who is president. So, so I think politically, I think the smarter thing for Democrats to do is let the voters decide that, you know, present the evidence, let the voters decide. Ryan, do you think, is it helpful or does it help? Republicans, they have that kind of stirred out there, or is it best just to ignore it and just kind of we got policy to work on, tax reform, other things from a Republican standpoint? Or do they do they kind of like that the Democrats are fighting among themselves? Yeah, here I for think a little bit? I think both sides sort of enjoy it when the other side is engaged <laughs> in <on> each other, <laughs> which seems to happen more often on both sides now than I've ever seen. Yeah, it's like chewing um, on everybody. Republicans love the Democrats in disarray storyline, and Democrats love the Republicans in disarray <laughs> storyline. But I think that uh, Schumer and Pelosi and Tom Perez and others in positions of leadership in the party have shown some discipline and um, smarts in approaching the the impeachment question. Some discipline um, because it's not easy to uh, tell your base that you don't want to do what they clearly want to do. <laughs> right. um, so maybe uh, this ad buy by Tom Steyer takes some of the air out of the balloon, but. Um, they they clearly have learned the lesson of the Clinton impeachment when, as Drew said, um, Republicans impeached President Clinton and his favorability went up and Republicans went down. Yeah. So and they he ended as one of the highest popular presidents. If I remember the numbers, he's in the top ten or something. It they know amazing. who the voters are. They need to 
to get to to appeal to to win, mm-hmm. and it's it's not the impeached Trump crowd. Yeah. Well, let me close on this, and this is kind of in my mind the year's over, right? You you got tax reform, you got CR, you got these other things. That's all going to work itself out before the year's out. Then you go into next year, and you really election year. Uh, sessions are usually shorter in the, even though there's still a lot of days in them they're shorter in getting things done just because of the politics right is there anything that's kind of hanging out there that that Republicans really are going to kind of put on the agenda and say this is what we got to do in 18 and do it early enough to to, to, to kind of put on the scorecard one more item uh, I know Drew said earlier that sometimes those people lose track of what those scorecards are but in this town, everyone looks at those scorecards. What's the piece there, Brian, that people are looking and saying, okay, get tax reform, and this is what we've got to do next? I think the first thing to say is that the president will drive that legislative agenda. What the president wants to do is what the Congress, the Republican Congress, will probably do. And mm-hmm. I think what he'll likely turn to after tax reform is um, an infrastructure bill. And mm-hmm. he's clearly not willing or interested in giving up on Obamacare repeal yet either. So I wouldn't be surprised if both those that things reappears. Yeah. Yeah, um, become a focal point in the beginning of 2018. And uh, lastly, Drew here, what, what do Democrats need to be thinking about as they move into 18, you know, as they have a Senate that um, they could lose some seats or they might have an opportunity? The House seems a little different than it was a year ago. I mean, it seems a little more still Republican lean, but not as for sure, as it used, a lot of retirements occurring over there. What, 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 do, what do Democrats need to be thinking about next year? A lot of retirements, and I think the Democrats will run um, against the tax bill if it passes, maybe even if it doesn't, and, and maybe even against that health care reform vote in the House. Because when you talk about limiting the deductibility of state and local taxes, I think that reflects a breakdown in Trump's mind, that there are blue states and red states, it's okay to punish the blue states where state and local taxes are higher. higher. Senators run the same way. There aren't many Republicans getting elected from blue states, so they don't have to worry about blue states as much. However, there are every blue state has red districts. As you well know, every red state has blue districts. Mm-hmm. So what's happened here is the House Republican delegations, I think, have been left behind. I counted in just California, New York, and New Jersey three very high local tax jurisdictions. And blue states generally. Blue states, very blue states, 17 House Republicans who won with 60% or less in 2016. Only takes 24 to flip the House. That's a lot of vulnerable people. If they're voting directly or not resisting a vote or not preventing a bill from passing, Mm -hmm. that very concretely raises their constituents' taxes. So the Democrats have to kind of keep an eye on those issues when it comes to taxes and... Those are, those are there's nothing like a concrete vote to hang on somebody's neck, you know. You know that's a risk. <laughs> and, and I and I think even if you voted against the bill, nonetheless you're, you're voting for leadership. Paul Ryan. Yeah, you're yeah. voting for Paul Ryan for speaker. And this is a, this is a Republican initiative, and 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 you didn't lay down on the tracks and stop it. Well, let me say this. I mean, we again first to both of you. Thank you very much for being part of this today. I'm thinking. 30 days from now or so when we do another one, I have no idea the political lay of the land as we did 30 days before. Uh, It changes so dramatically. Someone talked to me yesterday. I mean, think about it. It was just, you know, early of the week. And they complained about so much that has to go on this week. And I'm thinking it's only one week. No kidding. But it seems like it's a new level of... Of it used to be you could do one issue in a week and that was a lot. Mm-hmm. Now it's just controversies, issues, 
every week, every day, and so a month from now, who knows what it's the issue is. a month till the Alabama special, almost exactly, and, yeah. and we may have a completely different view about what's happening and what's possible after that. Yeah, it's very interesting. So thank you both very much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.